The month of May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month. So this is our PSA to you, our listeners, whether you surf or not. Skin cancer is deadly, but death from skin cancer is preventable. The key is simple. Know your spots. You don't even need to be an expert. In fact, I know that you know your spots better than anyone else. So if you know what moles and spots are on your body, you can easily identify if they are problematic. And the way to do it is with a very simple and easy to remember ABCs of skin screening. A is for asymmetry. If the mole or spot has an irregular shape, go see a dermatologist. B is for border. Uneven borders, like high on one side and low on the other, go see a doctor. C is for color. If you have a range of different color spots on your body, go see a doctor. D is diameter. If the spot is larger than six millimeters, go see a doctor. And E is for evolution. If any of the spots on your body are changing in any way, size, shape, color, elevation, this is very suspect. Go see a doctor. And when you see the doctor, they'll ask you, is this a new spot? How has it changed? So knowing your spots is incredibly valuable information. So it's simple, just do a quick screening daily, keep tabs on what's happening. Early detection is key to long life. I've had cancerous spots cut out and burned off and they have left zero cancer behind because they were detected early. So if you need a recommendation for a dermatologist, sunbum.com has a link to skincancer.org's directory. This PSA is made possible by Sunbum Their mission is to move the needle on skin cancer backwards. And information is power, so know your spots. Sunbum is also making today's show advertising-free, so there won't be any interruptions mid-show. But we did want to encourage you to know your spots. So thank you, Sunbum, and I hope that you enjoy today's show with Ben Freeston. Surf forecasting has come a long way, and maybe I shouldn't be admitting this on air, but I still call the local surf report the phone number almost daily, recorded by lifeguards in the tower on the Huntington Beach Pier. They are human beings staring at the surf at the time of the recording, giving you a real-time report. That number, by the way, just in case you don't believe me, is 714-536-9303. And it is seared into my memory because I've been calling it for longer than smartphones have existed, longer than you could just automatically dial your saved favorites. I honestly think it's the number I've called the most probably in my life. In fact, I know it is. There's no other number I've called that many times. But it is a report. It is not a forecast. And for a long time, I valued it because it was human beings' voices delivering the report, which I felt offered a credibility that an online report didn't, even if a human being typed out that online report. But then Surfline introduced cameras, and I realized that my own eyes were gathering more information from a 30-second live stream of a camera than that human being could report on in a 60-second recording. The technology of cameras had opened up an opportunity. Well, all along the way, while I was doing that, there was a guy in England, Ben Freeston, who was bumping up against similar limitations in forecasting in his own local region. So he started collecting all of that data and much more. And he tried to make sense of what that all meant for surfers, how that all translated into surfable waves. 
And he took it a step further and he built models based on all past data points to determine what predictions he could make for incoming weather systems. And he built a website to share all of that information called Magic Seaweed. It was launched in 2002. We will discuss more about that journey, but the next major milestone that may have affected you directly happened in 2015 when Australian surf retailer Surfstitch purchased both Stab Magazine and Magic Seaweed for a combined total of 13.8 million US dollars, along with 4.8 million shares of Surfstitch stock, which in a very short time, you'll hear Ben tell, turned out to be not worth very much. But then two years later, Surfline swooped in and purchased Magic Seaweed from Surfstitch for an undisclosed number, and the two forecasting websites operated in tandem for the next five years. That brings us up until last month, where on April 4th, Magic Seaweed was integrated into Surfline.com, and Ben Freeston shifted his role to Surfline's Vice President of Product and Innovation. So, spoiler alert for later in this chat, but Remember all those data points I talked about Ben collecting? Imagine using machine learning to do the exact same thing with all of Surfline's cameras all around the world, 24 hours a day. Every undulation of the ocean, every person in the lineup, and each of their behaviors, collected, sorted, and organized. Wild to think about what all that data could mean in our near future. So let's hear it all directly from Ben himself. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is my conversation with surf forecast guru, Ben Freeston. Enjoy. Let's enter the conversation by, can you just tell me um, where you grew up and what was your entry point into surfing? Yes, I grew up in the south coast of, of England and I, I always loved the sea, but I think I grew up in the tail end of the 80s windsurfing craze. And so my first experience of being in the water with in 10 was my cousin, I think, had got this windsurfer and we were trying to figure that out. Um, and I fairly quickly figured out that it was so much easier without the sail on it to, to make sense of. And that was, that was really the way I first connected with surfing. And, you know, obviously you discover from there, there's a little nascent surf community on that you know, pretty unsurfed bit of the coastline at the time. It wasn't wasn't a tremendous area of fetch. It wasn't great waves. And that was really the start of the thing for me. Um, and then as I got older, I was like, this, this, I don't think this is a thing. I think this might be the thing. And then I needed to go and figure out where, where it could be the thing, which is, you know, it's a, a long journey that's been going on kind of ever since because that bit of the coast just surfing it's it's eye of the storm surfing for the most part. The groundswell doesn't make it up with enough enough size to be interesting. So you're you're trying to dodge dodge the front, be there at the right time, find shelter, um, which was a, you know it's a very particular kind of forecasting challenge finding those mm -hmm. things. Um, as I moved, I mean I moved around a lot, but as I ended up further west here, the problems were a little different. We got a lot more swell exposure, but still that crazy wind. So you're you're triangulating constantly to try and find 
the gaps and the coastlines really convoluted. So, you know, you can be surfing one side, can be 15 foot of swell, 41 hour onshore wind. I can drive for eight minutes. I could be facing pretty much opposite direction. Wow. And surfing two, three foot with maybe a wind that's been blocked coming across maybe 20 mile an hour offshore. So it's, it's different. It's different yeah. to Southern California surfing for sure. Well, yeah, absolutely. What, um, what were you relying on for forecasting at that point? Well, I mean, this is part of, I guess, the sort of origin story of seaweed was at that point, it was very wind driven. So you were looking for storms. So you were going to the normal television weather forecast, because of course this is pre-internet. And they were saying, oh, there's going to be a big storm on Thursday. You're like, there's going to be a big storm on Thursday. Somewhere in there, I'm going to find a window and I'm going to dodge that thing and I'm going to make sense of it. Um, and it wasn't until later that I really started to get excited about like, where Groundswell came from and that long travel swell problem. Like, that was a kind of a, a later evolution in the journey. And I hadn't really got much intuition to that. I'd been really relying on this local stuff. We had a couple of buoys, which I started to plug into once I'd realized this was a, this was a thing. Um, and that was a very early part of my journey into trying to understand the thing better. But a lot of it was wind. And still, a lot of it is wind, right? Um, particularly here. It's, it's, it drives everything that happens. Were you utilizing the internet? When you say plug into the buoys, where were you getting those? Yeah, results? so no. I mean, for, for the first, I want to say, five, ten years I was surfing, no, I wasn't utilizing the internet because there was almost no internet. Right. There wasn't much. And when there was, it was weird because, you know, for anyone who isn't old enough to remember the life before the internet, like there was no one to ask the question to, right? It didn't, it didn't exist. And, and the weird thing about the internet was you had all these scientists and geeks going on there, putting data on, but you didn't have anyone caring to translate that for a lay person. So the way to understand that data was just to go neck deep into it and, and sort of tear it apart. So I started finding the buoy data some early model data on the internet with no manual, no handbook, no guidebook, no one to go and ask, like, what does this mean? And so really it was kind of, yeah, first person experimentation to try and understand what it might be telling me. Um, and that, that was the journey slowly. Yeah. So through buoys into the modeling stuff and just, you know, eventually trying to piece together like, who even knows the answer to this stuff? Like who even know what, what, what even is the academic discipline that studies this stuff? Like, you know, yeah. I didn't know and I didn't know who to ask, um, which is again, like, you know, contrast that to 2023, everyone knows everything about everything. Um, it's hard to remember a time different. Well, I do remember it. And, uh, and I remember it looking like a foreign language to me and then just ignoring it completely because I did not understand it. And eventually people like yourself came along to translate it for me. But I'm just curious, what about you and your personality like um, made you operate the opposite way? Like why was the data so rich to you? Um, yeah. were you and what were you studying academically and all that sort of stuff? Oh, so academically, I was a bit of a flake. I ended up studying... I started a degree in social anthropology just because it seemed like it would be interesting and it was kind of interesting. Um, but I was a, like, I was a geek kid. We had, we had that early home computer that no one quite knew what it was going to do, but you kind of felt like you should at least know what it did. And I got pretty interested in knowing what it did. So I was, I was quite into that. Um, and then I think I had a, I had a fairly kind of, I had something of an epiphany. I went out to, 
I was in Nias in like 98, I think it was. And I felt a long, long, long way from home. It was during that, um, I realized afterwards it was during like the civil conflict there. And there was, there was like four surfers there. It was super, super remote feeling. Wow. Um, and I remember being there, two things occurring to me. One was I didn't know where waves came from and I really wanted to know. And it was really an itch I needed to scratch. And the other was just that I think it very concretely realized that I, I wanted to put surfing in the center of everything I did. Like, you know, when you've gone somewhere and you've really gone and it's, it's been really hard to get there and you realize that surfing doesn't look like other things, right? You can go on vacation easily. You can have a really nice time easily. There's something about that surf thing that's hard. And it was like, I think it's worth it being hard, right? Because the upsides are huge. Um, I want to do something here. What do I do? Well, I wasn't going to be a pro surfer. You know, kids who grew up windsurfing on the south coast of England don't tend to yeah. make it. Um, maybe surfboard shaper would have been a thing. You know, if you're a sort of maker and a tinkerer, that could have been a route. And uh, but I had this, I had this kind of, you know, self-taught background playing around with computers and those things. And so I thought, well, maybe there's something here to go and go and look at. But it was very much like at that point, not really a, it could be a business or even it could be a hobby. It was just like, oh, I wonder what else you can know. Um, and then for me, you know, if you go on to that early stage internet and you find this weird room and it's got all these numbers in it and you don't understand those numbers and you tinker and what comes out is that surf chart that you see now, that's, that's a big moment. Like for, a, for, for me with the mix of things that I like doing in life, I was like, whoa. I've taken that geeky, sciencey piece and I've made something that I've, it's aesthetically cool, right? I can see the Atlantic Ocean now, I can see a big swell in the middle of it. It just looks rad, right? It feels creative. And now I can take that thing and I can know where to be on Thursday wow. and do this other thing that I really love, which is surfing. Yeah. So that feels, feels pretty holistic, right? It's like it, it touches so many different bases. And I think, you know, for those of us who put surfing kind of center of what we do, it's always more than just getting in the ocean. So there's always something else to it, um, you know, obviously for yourself, I think for most people. And so for me, that was the other piece that I needed to kind of weave it yeah, more deeply into my, into my life. It's really fascinating. Like thinking about how to put surfing in the center of your life, if you would have thought about how to make a living off of surfing, which is a different question, you never yeah. would have landed where you are now, because obviously there that's that wasn't there wasn't a business model. It's weird, <laughs> isn't it? Totally, it's so strange. But but I I totally understand the part that you're saying, which is you're interested in data, you're interested in surfing, those things kind of converge, and when you have that moment of um, putting that information together, and you get that swell chart. And then you show up on Thursday, if there's actually waves there that you forecasted on your own, that has to feel like something that you want to share with people, right? Pretty empowering. That's yeah. right. And that was, just, that was, I mean, there's a couple of things to touch on there. The, the, yeah, the career thing's kind of hilarious, right? Because even if you'd <laughs> said to someone, I want to do computers and surfing, they'd be like, get out of here. And then totally. my kids now are at that age where they're going into school and the, the school is starting to give them some guidance on thinking about careers for the future. And I was like, oh man. Can you imagine either of us like, I'm going to be a surf podcaster. Come on. Really? Totally. What's that? Exactly. Don't be silly. Um, here we are. So yeah, that, that, that makes me smile. Um, and then, yeah, the sharing bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always, I've always been pretty unashamed of what I'm building and building first for me. Everything I do, I build first for me because I know that that gives it a certain degree of integrity. 
but also it's selfish, right? I want it. I yeah. want to make the things that I need to use. Um, and when I started sharing it, it was really interesting because I didn't have, because like, it, was, it wasn't planned to be a business. So I didn't have targets and metrics and all the startup stuff that people have never really any expectations at all. And the internet was a fairly welcoming place in like 2002. You know, it was people yeah. by other enthusiasts. So there wasn't like this hard edge to it that you were trying to avoid. It felt fairly private. We're just sharing and it was pretty, it was pretty nice. Um, but I had two, you know, I had two reactions. I had the, like, wow, this is super useful. And then I definitely had the get out of here. Like, what are you talking about? Like, wave period. I've been surfing for 30 years. I've never heard of that. I don't need that. This is nonsense. Yeah. Which is fine. Right? I mean, um, so yeah, I was just sharing it because it was there and people were, people were pretty keen and it sort of grew from that very organically. Um, I mean, I think, it, you know, 2002, you'd made a website about anything. Yeah. You'd have been, you'd had, you'd had a good edge, wouldn't you? You'd have had a good chance. And so the timing yeah. was, the timing was good. Um, but yeah, it was just very organic for the first you know, couple of three years. What were you doing for work? Uh, <laughs> like for to get paid? As little as I could. Um, I, all sorts. I mean, I, I was a, I was doing, I was in that kind of travel mindset where you work, you know, the, the, the most money you can put in a box to travel for as long as you can to come back and do the same. And I was doing, I was loading mail vans and just like agency grind work. And then I blagged, I blagged a job in a sort of web agency startup spot, which at the time felt like, you know, it was the, the, the more creative edge of going and doing computers and so on. And that was that kind of rapid ascent of everyone thinking that's going to be the next big thing. So I blagged a job there locally um, with, a, with a boss at the time who was pretty flexible and would let me work from the office or, you know, occasionally abroad if I was if I was somewhere else. So I'd started to be a very earlier adopter of that kind of remote work lifestyle. Gotcha. Um, and that was, that was making it to me, but I've always been, you know, I've always been pretty scrappy. I've not, I've yeah. never been too concerned about the finance piece. Um, you get older and you have kids and all the rest, it becomes a, a hard inevitability, but certainly at that age, I was just like, oh man, as long as there's enough, enough money in my pocket to get yeah. to the next place and do the next thing. It's pretty good. Were there any hard costs involved with the uh, earliest stages of doing the forecasting? No, not really. I mean, uh, I must have paid a server bill of some kind, but it wasn't much. And I mean, the whole Magic Seaweed story was because because we never took we never took investment. We were always scrappy. Even you know, 2016 when I sold, we were still running on as 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 lean a setup as we could. Um, certainly it wasn't zero cost by then, but it was, it was always pretty lean. So, um, no, those early days, it was, it was really pretty cheap, you know, uh, hobby sort of stuff, working in the, working in the downtime, working in the off time and just kind of making it tick along. And it was, I mean, the, the, the moment of realization was really in working for an agency and people come to an agency and they want a project built. And they're sort of saying, hey, look, here's our plan. We're going to build this. I remember one was a dating agency. We're going to build this dating agency. If we can get the 25,000 users, we're all going to be millionaires. And I'm looking and Seaweed's got 100,000. And I'm like, huh, maybe, maybe I don't have to be working for this agency. Maybe there's something else here. But, you know, it sounds dumb now, but it's still not easy to, you know, it's not easy to make a, a living in this digital space. 
And 20 years ago, there was no playbook for doing that. Or, you know, 15 years ago, when I started to get serious about that, there was no playbook for it. So, um, you know, there was as much to learn there as there was with the with the data and the forecasting piece. Yeah, well, I'm sure that dating project had a fee that they were charging every month and that was their business plan. But for you, if you have 100,000 users using it for free, it's hard to ask them to then spend money. So That's right. what was the initial kind of uh, business model? <laughs> well, when there became a revenue model, so, what was it? I mean, so we did, we did when, when Google came out with that AdWords thing, we plugged that in and I, oh, okay. I brought on a friend as a partner at that point and we were like, oh man, this is, this is gravy. Like we're making a, I don't know, a hundred bucks a day. And I mean, I have a boss and we don't really have any customers, right? Cause no one, we don't owe anyone anything. And this yeah. is great. And then I remember waking up one morning and a hundred bucks a day was 20 bucks a day. Uh, you know, well, we'll just phone Google up, shall we? And ask them why like, <laughs> it doesn't work quite like that. Um, and so then, you know, in a, in a subscription still felt super nascent. Like no one was really doing subscription. There was no Netflix. There was no like common pan where it was reasonable to expect. So we really went into e-commerce. I was like, look, people need a forecast. They also need fins. They need a board. They need that stuff. And that feels like a really straightforward, honest way to make a make a living off the back of this thing. We're gonna we're gonna set up a shop, and, and we did. And I mean, we did it from brass tacks. We bought product. We built the software to sell stuff. We hired a little warehouse. We bought bags to put it in. Um, and, you know, we stamped envelopes and shoved it in the mail and really kind of bootstrapped into that piece. And that was how for the best part of a decade, I, I you know, I made it make sense commercially. Um, and then finally subscription comes along and subscription is just beautiful. I mean, you know, however you feel about paying that subscription is the most honest transaction in the world, right? I'm going to provide you something, hope it's valuable. You're going to pay me for Surfline now, what is it, 30 cents a day? Um, if you don't yeah. want it, don't pay. We'll give you something for free. But if you do want it, we're going to yeah. go all in and try to provide you the best value we can. And I'm, I mean, that's game changing. I love that. It's such a um, such a yeah righteous way to do it. Well, back to the ecom model. Who is funding that? Who is buying all the inventory? And um, <laughs> that's a whole different. I mean, forecasting is a full time job. That's a full time job as well. Yeah, it was. I was doing two full-time jobs. And I mean, the good the good news was I'd had my first child almost as we set up the e-commerce store. So having been like a, a, a work avoider for many years, but like, I'm going to have to do two jobs, right? People do two jobs when you've got young kids, that's what you do. So we would, you know, we were, we were doing, I was answering all the customer service calls, building the e-com software, fulfilling the orders, doing the buying and running the forecasting side of things with, with, you know, friend who became a business partner. That's what we were doing. Um, and it was super scrappy. And I mean, in terms of finances, we did, we were really lucky because like I said, we had that audience already. And I'd always worked on the principle that like good things will come, you know, get get people something they love and you'll figure this out later on. And so we had that piece ready. And then, I mean, I, I literally took equivalent of about 500 US and I bought DVDs. This was the like the pinnacle of the surf DVD market. And we sold 500 bucks of DVDs in four days. Wow. And I ordered a thousand bucks of DVDs. And within three, four years, I had a million dollars of stock just doing that double or nothing over and again. So we never had to take money. Um, I put money in in the sense that, you know, I had to live while I'm doing this. So I'm spending down anything I'd managed to pocket today. But, and that was really the, the way it rolled. And so, you know, it was a, it was a combination of, 
great determination and just good luck of timing that that yeah. was possible back then. Um, but it was interesting because people were saying to us, like, you know, hey, you can't sell neoprene online. People got to try that stuff on. There's no way you're selling boards online. Like, people want to feel that stuff. It turned out not to be true, fortunately. Um, you know, we did we did pretty well with that. Did you exit the DVD market at the right time? <laughs> Hopefully you weren't sitting on that much inventory. <laughs> Of all the great business disruption stories, I like to say that I was a step ahead of the DVD market collapse and we did have a sense. And yeah, a funny, funny story is I got invited. I think we were probably the biggest account for the supplier and I got invited out to a very nice lunch with them and halfway through the lunch, they pitched that I might just want to buy the whole DVD business. And uh, I, I very fortunately didn't buy the DVD business. So no. Um, they were yeah. looking for a sucker. <laughs> They were looking for a sucker and I looked like the sucker and, and, and fortunately I had a good day and I wasn't the sucker. That's hilarious. Um, at some, uh, we haven't even discussed Surfline. Explain kind of um, what they were to you and what gap they weren't filling in the market that Magic Seaweed was able to fill. Yeah, for sure. It's an interesting question because it's going to depend entirely on who's listening as to how they understand it. So if you're in California... Surfline is the elephant in the room. It's the big beast. Everyone knows about it. And so the gap is like these little details you have to think about around the corner of that. If you're not in California, we didn't even know about it for the first six or eight years we wow. were building seaweed. Um, and, and, you know, it's only been relatively recently that if I go to the beach, since we did the deal, people I'm talking to know about Surfline. Not let alone use it, know about it. So, I mean, in terms of space to play, it was all the places that aren't California or Hawaii. That was the way we saw it. And, and so we didn't really look at it as like cutthroat competition until I moved to California because we sold seaweed to Surfstitch, not Surfline for the first, for the first take. Um, and then it was like, oh, now we understand what this is and where we sit in in the, the ranking here, because we're the people that no one's heard of uh, when I go to the beach. And, and then it was a little bit more, well, where, where have we been left room to play and what can we do? And, you know, there were still spaces for sure, um, but, but a lot less um, there than elsewhere, which, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one because obviously if we'd, Sean and the team there were, were just started in that incredible market just so much opportunity, so many surfers, um, some really interesting problems to solve, North Wales, South Wales, the whole thing, and didn't need to look everywhere else. For us, we're in Southwest England. It's like, you know, I don't want anyone to misunderstand. There's like a vibrant surf scene here and there's plenty of people in the water. But pretty much from the get-go, the fun of it was like, wow, someone in Australia is using what we're doing. Someone in California or Florida or whatever is using what we're doing. This is exciting. And so that was a little bit different for us of just, we were immediately looking further afield. Um, I think the nature of just where we were located. Well, it seems though that um, if you're, that's a lot of different markets for you to service, you know, like, is it, is it twice as much work to, provide forecasting for a second region and 10 times as much work to provide forecasting for 10 regions? No, it's not. It's interesting. So Surfline, the way Surfline were really making their investment is around following that legacy of Sean Collins, having a team of experts, having those experts really interpret the data and provide you that 
written guidance on a daily basis. And that doesn't scale. Like it was immediately obvious to me that kid in England couldn't afford to do that here, let alone 50 different countries. So from the get go, obviously, because of my background as well, I was like, no, this is, this is a computer problem to solve. This is a model problem to solve. Then it gets interesting because it's, it's, it's not a scale problem, right? If you want to know what's happening in California, you know what's happening in Tahiti. You know what's happening in New Zealand, right? You have to know that in order to track it forward. So the, as soon as you get into that conclusion that now we need to go and build, we need to go and build wave models here, you, you're kind of de facto choosing a global path. Um, you, you then have to do a bunch of work to be sensitive to feedback in different regions and get it right. So there's a footprint, your footprint gets bigger, but it's not like, to your point, it doesn't get 10x harder. It's actually an economy of scale to it. You're doing all the things you need to do. You just need to make sure that you've got the right connections there to be doing it right for that region. So it actually worked out pretty well um, on that basis to be broader than we you know, maybe even had ambitions to be. Got it. And the other major investment that Surfline was making was cameras, right? Around the world. So that's a totally different model too. Yeah. So we had cameras in the UK um, and, you know, huge believer in that. It's very obvious that that was going to be successful and we'd started to scale that out a bit, but yeah, that absolutely is a harder game to play. And, you know, that was a, a hard game to take to, Surfline for sure. Um, yeah. And we, 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 you know, we kind of played around the edges of that, but outside of Europe, it was pretty clear that that wasn't going to be a place that we could compete without. Yeah. That, that would have been a real kind of take the investment, take the risk, take them on head on. Um, and we never really pushed down that, down that path. Yeah. I should have asked this earlier, but where did the name come from? Magic seaweed. <laughs> it's a, so that Indo story, I mean, the, 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 I'm in Indo and I'm trying to figure out where the waves come from. And I've, I've speaking to a local fisherman and he's telling me it's because of the full moon, this, this full moon thing, you know, Indo, Indo folks love the full moon for the swell. And I get home and it takes me a little while to figure out that I'm sure he's a smart guy, but the full moon doesn't make swell in Indo. It comes from Southern Ocean and the moon's affecting the tide and not a lot else. And so I got pretty excited by all these weird urban not urban legends, but like kind of folklore um, interpretations of surfing. And there's this this fisherman one here around hanging up seaweed and it curls when the storm's coming or something. So I picked the name. And the, the funny thing about it was, I mean, I, I gave it if as much thought as the conversation we just had describing it. Like it really was like, I need a domain name, I'll do one. And then, and then for about four years, I was like, oh man, this is so dumb. I got to change it. I got to go and buy surfforecast.com or, or, or surfinfo.web or whatever it was. And, you know, finally yeah. it, it dawned on me that whatever you do, make sure it's noticeable and memorable. And, and we probably did all right on that. I want to hear about that opportunity in 2016 or maybe previously with, uh, or maybe it started earlier, but with Surf Stitch. Yeah. Um, considering your yeah. bootstrap startup and when they kind of approach, Tell me yeah. about what was your gut reaction to that opportunity? Huh. Well, I, I mean, I, so I guess from about 2010, it wasn't unusual for someone to come across and say, hey, you like what you're doing. You think about a partnership or maybe you know, make an investment or whatever it was. And I was not 
I was kind of agnostic to that. It wasn't like I had plans to, I mean, I'm still here, right? So it wasn't like I had plans to disappear. Um, at the same time, you know, I was always super big on personal freedom and having that and running your own business is, is that and isn't that in a whole bunch of ways, right? So I'm looking at those opportunities and trying to figure out what they are. And they're, we're a really weird business at this point because we've got subscribers, we've got an advertising book, and we've got e-commerce. And we're big enough that people want a piece of that that aligns with them, but they don't necessarily want all of that. So, you know, we had chats with, I don't know, Billable, I remember it was one conversation. They're interested in e-commerce. They don't care about forecasting, they're interested in subscriptions. So it's hard to do a deal that really puts value where you think the value lies. Um, and then when SurfStitch came along, I mean, there were two things. There was very clearly some sort of urgency on their side and sort of stars in their eyes. And then they were trying to build this content meets commerce play. And they had a little, uh, again, twinkle in their eyes around this kind of Amazon Prime, like maybe there's a subscription in here as well thing. And so for us, it was like, well, okay, we can kind of tick all those boxes. And then, you know, are you serious? And you know, is the offer enough for us to take you seriously? And like I said, they were it's just a it was a never to be repeated moment in time. I think the way that thing was put together and well, it'll never be repeated because you know you know where it ended, right? So yeah. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a glorious outcome. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was that it was just looking at it. And I think you know one of the things with with business is you looking at the future, both in terms of what can I do, what can I make, what can I build, how can I be successful, but also in terms of risk and threat. And I've got, at this point, three young children. And I'm thinking, well, I want to make sure I'm providing them, like, the very best security. And this deal looks like a way I cement the legacy of that um, and, and just tick that box and know that I've done kind of right by that piece. Um, and, and certainly the noises they were making, which, to be fair, I mean, until they until they kind of messed it all up, they'd been good to, uh, yeah, we still need the team, all the folks need to be there because we're still going to run this thing. Um, you know, we're going to look after everyone. Um, this isn't the kind of cut and shut, which I, I, don't, I don't think it was. I don't think the intention was, obviously the intention wasn't for it to go the way it went, um, which for anyone listening is, you know, they were, <clears throat> they were briefly darlings of the Australian Stock Exchange. I think they hit half a billion dollar market cap almost it kind of be more than 12 months before that became effectively zero so you know it's a it's a major major business failure story um of which you know sam mack at stab and myself were um bumping along for the roller coaster ride um so yeah that was you know the deal was was reasonable i have no major regrets and obviously we found a safe harbor with surfline so it kind of worked out in the end did you give up anything in terms of the product that you were delivering to your clients? I'm sure you felt an obligation to the clients as well, or to the, the users yeah, of the platform. hundred percent. I mean, you know, I, I obviously we'll talk about this merger with Surfline and, and that piece. And I, 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 I'm only in the room because I feel like I have things left to do to make the product that I had in my head 20 years ago for mm -hmm the people who've been supporting it to date and the people that are around me are supporting me in doing that. 
like there's no other basis in which I'm for sale. Um, not, not to be holier than now, it's just like, I'll go and do something else. Um, if I don't feel that's true, cause it just wouldn't be that exciting. Wouldn't be that yeah. interesting. Um, and I do, you know, I value, like we all do, I value my time on this earth and I want to make sure I'm making things and things I like to make. So yeah, I definitely felt an obligation to the audience. And again, the, the surf stitch thing, you know, ironically, the surf stitch thing was much clearer on why the audience mattered as a piece of that. They didn't have anything else that looked like that. They needed that thing. Um, they benefited from that thing by it doing right by its audience. Cause the bigger the audience and the more engaged the audience and the better their ability to sell people who wanted to buy Econ. Um, yeah. Surfline, I mean, I'll be honest, before we did the surf stitch deal, we'd had some conversations with Surfline and Surfline I was more nervous about because, you know, why does a business buy its competitors? It didn't, it didn't have that same guaranteed feel to it. And, um, you know, we can talk about it, but luckily as we got closer, it was like, no, actually there's a better fit here than, you know, you might think has a little bit more complimentary, um, aspect to this than, than it looked like at start. What exactly about it was complimentary? Well, I'd, so I, when I did the deal with surf stitch, I got, I got locked into a, you know, you will work for us like it or not period. And the way I expressed I would like it more was to be based either out of the Australian or Californian office. And so I moved to California with the family. Um, and then when it became obvious that they were having difficulties, you know, no minor consideration was I'm in California. My kids are in school here. My visa is dependent on this job. Like anyone who hasn't done that, I advise you try it. It's very, very interesting. Um, and so, you know, the opportunity then to talk to Surfline was, I guess, it, you know, it made sense as a fit simply from that perspective. Um, and when I went and talked to those folks, I was, it, it was a little bit like, sounds soppy, but it's a bit like coming home. Like it's an office of people who've spent the best part of their lives trying to do the same thing that I tried to do. Yeah. And I, Never met those people before, right? I was a lone wolf. Well, I mean, I had people around me that I'd employed, but I hadn't, I hadn't had these, oh, wow, it's the same for you conversations with folks before. So it was actually like, oh, okay, there's, you know, unsurprisingly, we're trying to save this whole problem and it's, there's a lot of that going on. And then just, you know, I met the leadership there. Um, I met um, Jeff Berg, you know, the majority owner at the time and CEO, and they're just honest people. Like they, you know, people you could work with, they looked you in the eye, they told you, told you what they were thinking. There was just no messing around whatsoever. And I, I, I can, I can work with these people. I can do a deal with these people. Um, and if it's not perfect, that's okay. Cause at least they'll be upfront with me about what those bits are. And actually, you know, to be honest, it was better than I could have reasonably expected. Um, I moved over pretty painlessly was listened to immediately took a seat at the table. Um, they're very respectful. And then they not only kept the whole team on, but they kind of expanded the team in the UK here through time, um, really done right by everyone here as well, which has been just great to see, you know, people like kind of, you know, you don't promise people everything for the future cause you don't control it, but you, you, you do your best. Right. And so they, they, they really make good by folks here, which was, which was great. So yeah, it was, a, it was a strange roundabout way from, I think we first met in 2011 and maybe like, ah, this is not, this is not the, the, the path for us to ending up in that place and right. it feeling like, you know, fate probably guided it to the right, to the right, to the right spot. To the right timing. Yeah, that's um, it. 
Yeah. Well, you mentioned Stab and Sam McIntosh and Stab. Their yeah. version of this story was they bought back the company. and They did. Know, That's right. Was there a similar opportunity for you? Or I'm sure that was a consideration. I think so. I think the, you know, I took a lot of, I took a lot of gambles to get to where I got, perhaps without even realizing that I was doing it. And at that point, the buyback thing, so Stab, I think still Stab runs on kind of four or five folks, right? They punch well above their weight. They do a phenomenal job. We had a payroll of about 20 people. So buying it back, day one, I might have been able to do it out of my pocket but I would pretty much be straight into someone else's pocket for that first year of salary. Yeah. And so I'd be betting on being able to do a deal like I did with Surfline standing at the front of it rather than standing at the back of it. And I, I just didn't have the, I didn't have the head or the heart for that. Um, you know, I was treated right through it and I didn't, I also, you know, having gone in and spoken to Surfline, we, we can get into it, but like the things they had that I didn't have, I was really excited about. Hmm. And so again, I just, I want to go, you know, I'm, I'm 47 in a month's time. I'm pretty confident that I am going to look back and this is going to be the lion's share of my innings one way or another. And so I want to do it like as hard and far as it can be done. And this was the way to do that versus like taking it back, going, figuring out what the commercial model was, ending up with an investor anyway, which is it's exactly the same boat, right? Someone else is pulling your strings. Yeah um versus this so yeah i i looked at it and thought about it for sure and you know i i, I admire sam for i admire sam full stop but for the way you walked through that he, you know, he did a, he did a great job yeah um you we started out by laying the foundation of you're just learning on the fly a lot of these things yeah. At a point yeah. when you're dealing with these kind of large business acquisitions and larger numbers, yeah. did you have somebody that you were relying on to kind of run these, you know, a business consultant, a business mentor that you could? No, no, not really. So I took, I took two partners. One was an old school friend who was really a, another numbers computer guy. And then another guy I'd met who came on as a sort of sales biz dev guy. Um, and he, he was always you know, he would always, always oftentimes lead out in front in a lot of those conversations, but not at that point. So surf stitch, yes. And then, you know, he, he, he took his piece and left after that. I've, you know, I have a pretty simple negotiating style on that stuff, which is just being pretty blatantly blunt and honest and clear. And I've found that as long as I don't sell myself short and what I want, yeah. And I'm honest with myself about what that is. You know, it's, it's sort of worked out. All right. I've not, Good. I've not, I've loved learning as I've gone along and, uh, you know, bumbled through it, I think for the most part. And yeah, yeah it's been all right. We had to, we had, you know, once we, as we did the deal with surf stitch, we brought on an advisory firm at that point as part of the deal. It was all kind of wrapped up into the deal making process. So we had some advocacy and obviously we had good legal. Um, but, I mean, I generally, I generally think if you can't do a deal that both sides can explain on a single sheet of A4 in normal human English, like it's not there, right? It's not, it's not, a, it's not the deal to be done. And once you've got it on that piece of paper, you can hand it off to a lawyer and you can pay them and they'll turn it into whatever it is they need to turn it to. So, yeah, not, not a huge amount. And I mean, listen, it took me 
20 years to go from scrapping in my bedroom to like, you know, really kind of building something substantive. So maybe I could have done it in four if I'd taken some advice. <laughs> but we'll never know, right? Yeah, maybe. But yeah, I think the key, you know your business in and out and you've done every single role in your business and your business is so unique to the yeah. surf world that it's kind of, you're in a very unique position that you just have to not bungle the the legal part, which like you said, That's you can it. hire out. That's it. I think so. I mean, I don't, yeah, like you said, it's, there's so many kind of touch points with this stuff from like linking through that really complex ocean data piece to everything else that has to happen in the chain that, you know, you don't want to sell yourself short that you've developed a lot of institutional expertise myself, the people who worked around me and you know, it has value and, hopefully the value's in plain sight and people are respectful of that and you can do a deal and, you know, there's not too much trickery around that, I don't think. So that's the basis on which we did those and seemed to work. Right. Well, back to um, Surfline purchasing Magic Seaweed from Surfstitch in 2017. Yeah. Um, you mentioned it being a complimentary fit. It was complimentary not only in terms of like the two businesses working together, but the actual forecasting models itself themselves were yeah. different and mutually beneficial, correct? That's right. I mean, the, so we both did all the things. Like, I don't want to pretend like we were in completely different worlds, but yeah. Surfline had Kevin Wallace and Kurt Corte and these folks who've spent their life looking at charts in ways that, you know, I hadn't. Um, and really understanding the nuances of what those meant to people. And then we'd gone all in on this model that we had, you know, really smart people building, um, felt really confident in. And the thing with the, the thing Surfline had, the two things Surfline had that got me as excited now as I was then are, I don't know that Surfline have told this story well, but Sean Collins was obviously this prescient guy who kind of invented modern surf forecasting. He was also meticulous. So he wrote down every surf report he took since that company was founded 37 years ago. And everyone he employed, all of that is archived. The original, every single crisp ball. You can go back now. Have you, you're in Huntington, right? Yeah. Have you been into the Surfline office? I have. It's been years, but I have, yeah. You need to go back in because they've put together a little, like, foyer with a, with a little, like, memorabilia wall of, of Sean's stuff, his old Meteo facts and like just these real artifacts from back in the day. But they've got a few of his original handwritten reports there and they read like a Surfline report today, except that in total, oh, I should have, I should have, there's well over a million of these surf reports. Like if, if you were to go to the beach every day, twice a day and take observations of the surf, it would take you, you like a thousand years to get as much data as surf plans accumulated. So I can tell you how great my models are. I can tell you all the smart stuff we did, right? But I mean, a, the forecast is an optimization problem, Like you're just trying to crunch that error gap down as small as you can get. And the only way you can really know what the error gap is, is to have flawless observations. Right. And these guys have got 37 years, a million flawless observations. This is how we get this is how I stand in front of you now and don't say, oh, yeah, we think we're quite accurate. And I say, look, I know we're the most accurate player in the game because I know we're the only folks who have that data. So I know that we've done that meticulous like analysis. I know in the past year we've halved our error on Surfline because we have that data and because we're constantly crunching it. Like, that's massive. Um, so that was really exciting to me. And again, you know, 
um, unabashedly a geek about this stuff. So this is what gets me excited. Um, and then a thousand cameras, and I was looking at this like, you know, surf cameras like a entertainment channel, right? You look at it, you, maybe you pay a subscription to look at it. That's a good business. But it seems so wasteful because those things are always on and they're watching the surf 24-7. I was like, whoa, you've seen the machine learning stuff that's coming out, everyone else is doing. These things aren't cameras, passive dumb cameras. These are sensors, right? Surfline has a thousand sensors 24-7 a day pointing at a thousand key beaches. Like, you don't have to be a genius to look at this and go, these things are going to feed in even more data than Sean and team were able to collect. And again, that makes everything just better and better and better. And, you know, we've been 20 years kind of recipients of other people's scientific endeavor. Like, yeah, here's wave period, and here's this, that, and the other, and, you know, here's swell direction. And you know all that stuff. You use that stuff. But it was never really what you were asking. You wanted to know lefts and rights. Hey, is it going to be steep or slack? Is it going to barrel? Like, how many waves are going to be in a set? And we were just like, I don't know, because science hasn't told us. And suddenly you have all this data and you have this kind of machine learning paradigm. You're like, well, we don't need this expertise anymore. The computer can go and do the thinking for us. As long as we've got enough data, it can make those connections. And now we can start telling surfers what they really care about, which was for me, that was pivotal. I was like, well, this is surely must have been the vision I had 20 years ago, even if I didn't really have it clearly. Right? This, is, this is the end game now. Um, and so that's where I got to a point where I was like, oh, I don't, I don't care. Like, this is a good deal, a bad deal, or an ugly deal. Like, I just want, I want to be in that room with all those things to play with. Um, and luckily it was a, you know, it was a good, fair, honest deal. And I got, I got my hands on the toys. I understand what you're saying about the cameras being kind of a sensor, but what data I, so they can collect the data, which, it, uh, you know, the frequency of waves, maybe to a certain degree, the wave height, but can they predict or capture, you know, if it's barreling versus not barreling yeah. and details like that? I'll, I'll send, I'll send you some stuff and, and you, you know, can share it with people listening, but we can tell how big the waves are in the pocket as the wave evolves through the whole wave. We can tell whether it's being surfed. We can tell how far the surfer is from the lip, from the trough, from the pocket, all the way through the wave. We can tell whether they got barreled. We can tell whether the lip's plunging or spilling. We can see the shape of that, and we can work out whether there's a barrel. We can see spray coming off the back of the lip as it's plunging as another signal that it's barreling. Um, we can see everyone in the water to the extent that we know how many surfers are there. We can see that they're sitting on their boards, which means we can infer currents because obviously if they're drifting, we can track movement. So there's a huge amount of data that comes out of those things that's directly relevant to the things we care about as surfers. So yeah, it's been, it's, it's exceeded my expectations, to be honest, because I thought like, there's some stuff we can do here, but that world is moving so fast and we're just kind of hanging on for the ride. Yeah. It's insane to even try to wrap your mind around. Like it's really at a certain point, just how fast can we process the data and then translate yeah. it to the, to the user? Because I mean, at, it, with everything you just said, you can predict crowds. All the things you care about. And again, as I keep, I keep trying to wrap my head around this is like, you know, talk to the people about what we're building and talk to the team, like just listen to this conversation as though it were a parking lot conversation with another informed surfer. Like if you got out of the water and I'm getting in and I say to you, Hey David, how was it? Like, 
you're not going to say to me it was 3.6 foot 16 from the southwest. That's for sure. Right. You might say it was three to four foot, right? And you might say it was fair or fair to good or one of those other things. But there's like a whole host of things you're probably going to tell me immediately after three to four foot, which frankly I can see with my eyes anyway, right? That are the bit that I really care about. Yeah. And we don't do any of those things at the moment. Yeah. And we can do all of those things. Right. And we can do them in thousands of places around the globe. So that's the bit that, that you know, you can, as you can tell from this conversation, gets me kind of excited that there's uh, it's another 10 years of this thing. Yeah, it's it's honestly not that different than the way Google Google Maps operates and tells me what the traffic's going to be like on my morning commute, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, and it's that subtle little, you, like you slip into it, don't you? I was thinking this the other day, you know, you, you get in your car now and you use the, you use that satellite navigation. And again, that you can't remember a time without it. Yeah. And it doesn't feel artificial or odd or supplementary. It's just core to that experience. Um, and I think there's a, you know, I think there's data here that, that can be the same. And it, it gets us into this really interesting place. So if you think about, you know, Surfline's been, to my mind, and, and seaweed, in this paradigm where it's like, Everyone's trying to get a magazine cover shot. Like you're waiting for six to eight an epic, right? You, yeah. everyone else, that's the formula. Here we go. We tell you what it is. And that's not the reality, right? Most, most people don't want that. Most people want something different. And at the moment, there's really very little personalization in this. And, you know, it's an accusation that recently gets thrown at us. It's like, hey, you're you know, throwing all the people in the same place at the same time. I don't like this. It's a kind of nature of the information that we have to offer. Um, but we know that, you know, Orange County loves Blackies and Tahini and these other places that offer a different version of the surfing experience. And we haven't really been able to speak to that mm. before now. And this data will give us the ability to do that. So we can be really tailored in, in helping people get to like, where they want to get to, not just, you know, the epic yeah. day at the epic spot, which I think I think that's quite transformational as well. Um, the next kind of detail of data that other tech companies are collecting for forecasting traffic or whatever else is uh, like user submitted data, you know, for ways, let's say for, or um, so what does that look like for Surfline? Will you be utilizing that or asking people to plug it in on their own or? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, you know, there's a conundrum at the heart of what we do, right? Which is we all want this information and we all wish no one else had it. That's the blunt truth. And so I yeah. think that we're in a slightly different place than Waze, for example. Waze was like, hey, we all put in and we all get out. Um, with surfing, I think we've got to be respectful of the fact that people are perhaps a little more private with what they know and what they do than that. Not everybody, but some people. So I think we'd always want to treat that with like a degree of respect uh, and make sure that if we did that, it was kind of clearly reciprocated that you're going to put this in and you're going to get this out. Um, yeah. So yeah, we, 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 I mean, it's, we should be doing it because we've got so many people on the platform. So many people are using the product. There's obviously an opportunity for us, but it's that that just, it's like all these things. It's very easy to look around at the world around you and, and see these analogs and just assume that they're going to fit. But yeah. 
the reason that, like you said earlier, the reason that you know subline is run by surfers is because I hope we understand those real subtle sensitivities and differences that just make this thing what it is. So yeah, definitely never say never, but I, I just got to got to figure out what that looks like done right yeah. and what the incentive is. Why do you want to share it with me? Um, why do you trust me to look after it correctly and get that bit you know, perfect? Yeah. Well, it's exciting. It's exciting times. I mean, it seems just so ripe for growth. Um, and with all the data, it's just, it's hard to even wrap your mind around all the different directions it can go and how sophisticated forecasting can become for us, the surfers, you know? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting because on the one hand, I think we can get super sophisticated. On the other hand, I think there's always some magic left there. Like conditions can change so fast. I think there's a yeah. sort of, there's a there's a place you can get to where you can give a lot more guidance. And then there's still this space where, you know, I don't think we'll ever quite get to. Um, and it'd be interesting to see what that gap looks like in, you know, three, four, five yeah. years time. Um but yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll get, we'll get a lot closer. I think it's definitely intriguing. Well, for you though, I mean, I've always personally felt like the exciting part of whatever it is that I'm doing professionally is the growth phase and solving problems and kind of creatively solving. If it, if it becomes rote, it just becomes boring to me. And it feels like yeah. for you, you've spent 20 years learning your craft and now you have all of the resource to empower you to just really explore whatever you want to explore. So it yeah. feels like a really exciting time for you just professionally. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, you know, life's too short to be going by rote and I'm not particularly possessive. If someone else can do what I'm yeah. doing as well as me, I'm happy for them to have it. I don't need it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was, it was this, it was this deal really that put me in this place of being like reinvigorated to go and go at the thing. Cause I think to your point earlier, like I started off in the geeky thing, the problem here to solve is how to do this. And then you get subsumed by the business thing. Well, the problem here is like, how do I make this work? Like it's no charitable organization supporting surf forecasting entrepreneurs, right? Like it needs yeah. to make money. And then you go and learn business, which was never, you know, I'm not anti at all, I'm, you know, excited by what we achieved, but it wasn't like my passion. And now come back to that original piece. But in a new world, it's not just that I've got more tools and more data. It's like the, if I'd had that data 20 years ago, I wouldn't have told you what I could do with it. Whereas now we're in this yeah. world where it's like, I've been lucky. Listen, I've been lucky in the original timing and I'm lucky to have hung on into this point where the world's changed in our favor because everyone's telling you, you know, everyone you speak to machine learning, AI is going to change their lives somehow. Like for us, we were really neck deep in that game. If it, if it doesn't change things for us, we're really doing something wrong. Um, we're already building yeah, predictable totally. data. So, yeah. Um, well, I'd like to know how your personal life has changed. Obviously, we left kind of in the timeline of the conversation. You were living in California. Yeah. You're no longer living in California. And so what is the, what is your day-to-day -day, uh, life look like now? How is it different? What's your workload like? Yeah, so I came back during COVID when immigration status was being decided by tweet um and literally left and couldn't re-enter the country because that, that edict had been issued and you you can't negotiate with the u.s immigration service so um took the decision to to locate back here and you know my kids are 10 14 and 15 now so as much as i've enjoyed 
seeing the world and traveling and giving them the experience of being in California. It's like, no, I'm, you know, I feel like probably you want to do high school in one place and have the opportunity to be a bit rooted. And community is amazing here. It's really strong. Weather sucks. Um, and so, yeah, work-wise, I mean, I'm working heavily crossing over with California, which is a lot of work, but at the same time means I get in the ocean every morning, which is kind of non-negotiable. So, you know, making sure I do that. And then I'm, I've, I've thrown myself into, we've got a, where are we now? 60 year old surf lifesaving club in the 7,000 person town I'm based and my kids go and my wife and I both coach there and just trying to really lean into like the benefits of this environment, which is just, and if I go to the beach, I know everyone there. Um, five or six of my kids teachers I surf with on a daily basis like it's you know it's it's really it's a really tight small surf town setup um and and you know from here then running product and data science for surfline remote which is kind of a head spin um but yeah that's the that's the daily congrats that's a perfect life man (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, like you said earlier. Whatever I've got, I want something different. Unfortunately, I'm I'm built with the the nomad gene, the the seeking eternal change piece. But I, yeah, if I if I step back for a minute, I mean, I just can't find a way to to complain. I mean, I just feel like so many people, you know, founders or people who are um, entrepreneurs, they end up working. Oh, they they just overwork, you know, and they don't have the opportunity to really enjoy life. So the fact that you've been able to design a lifestyle business and still benefit from the the fruits of your labor, I think is amazing. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't want to sell it short. It's a lot of work. We're, we're, we're pretty committed to what we're doing. And so we're, we're, we're definitely grinding away. But, you know, when you like what you're doing, it's not quite such a grind. And so, yeah, it's it's been, it's always a struggle, right, to stay. It's hard to know what you want sometimes. Hmm. You create a story, don't you, for yourself? Like, this is what I want. And I've been interested to test that story, and it's not always been true. Um, hmm. And I'm, I'm, I feel like that's a learning thing. You just keep learning. Like, as you get older, you get a little bit more relaxed about, oh, hey, maybe the story's a bit different, and it's not quite such a romantic one, but, you know, maybe I do care about what car yeah. I drive or whatever it is. And I, and I, I mean, I don't think I do. But, I, like, accepting those quirks about yourself and just – kind of being true to those is weird. That's part of getting older for me that I found intriguing. That is intriguing. I think having a spouse that you can kind of bounce those ideas off of and check in with every once in a while and they hold you accountable to helping you figure those things out. You have to also have the leisure time built into your day and your lifestyle to where you can pick your head up and just ask that question and do an act, an honest survey, you know? Yeah. I think that's right. And then for me, it was always, you know, that was the weird thing about being on the visa in the States was I'd always been really clear that the way to know you were choosing to do something was to be able to walk away. Like if you ever find yourself in a position where the mortgage is so big and everything else is so heavy that you couldn't do that, then you're not got choice anymore. And that, that US situation was intriguing because I very much wanted to be there and I wanted to be doing the work I was doing. But I knew the moment I walked away, my immigration status was gone. My kids weren't in school. I didn't have healthcare. Yeah. And that's a, it's a weirdly different place to be in. And, and so that's always been, you know, it's how I wake up in the morning and I look at it and I'm like, oh man, I've got to do this thing today. This thing isn't the most exciting thing in the world. Like, 
yeah, but you chose to do that thing. <laughs> Stop being yeah. a whiner versus like someone else is making me do this thing. And I think if you can engineer a situation in which you're lucky enough to, to be able to make that statement and not everyone can, right? I, 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 you know, most people I know, my own parents, I don't think could have, could have been lucky enough to put themselves in that position. But if you can, I think that's the, that's the real like money shot. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, we're, we've never been in a society civilization has never been in a better time to design yeah. exactly what you're talking about because the technology is cheap. It's available. So many platforms are democratized. So it takes yeah. ingenuity. It takes hard work undoubtedly. Yeah. And it takes a willingness to do it for free probably for a long period of time. But yes, yeah. if you do all of that, you can absolutely have what you're talking about, I believe. Yeah. And then, I mean, we've got, you know, we've got people working. I mean, you know, I think my run's been good. We've got kids working for Surfline, writing computer code from kid out sprinter vans, driving between the desert and the coast. Amazing. Like, can you imagine that? I mean, that's not even like, you know, my sort of feral, scrappy origin story piece. Like, this is, this is just there. This is at the end of a college degree. Like, that's nuts. And so, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? We like to sort of bag on the modern world as, as this, like, you know, Things are getting worse. Like, well, yeah, for sure, we've got to be mindful of that. But like, that opportunity is ridiculous. Um, and it, it, you couldn't have even imagine fantasizing about it. Yeah, you know, thirty, forty years ago. Well, uh, question I had in my mind from the very beginning of our conversation: um, growing up where you grew up, surfing the waves that you were surfing, when you ended up on yeah. that first trip to Nias. Yeah. I feel like you just dove into a double black diamond, like expert level yeah. surf no, trip. Like did did yeah, you I, score waves I, and did I, you get barreled? Uh, I mean, you know, everything that someone doesn't see is the, is the barrel of my dreams and the way I tell it. So I think it was, I, you know, I traveled around a bit before then. I'd done a bunch of um, time in France, which anyone who's, who's been to those you know, beach breaks in France will know that you, you grow up pretty quick and you get humbled oh, pretty yeah. quick. So I'd put in a fair bit of time there. I think we were in like off season or fringe season, and this was before the earthquakes. So this was before the slab dropped. So I guess what I'm lining up to say was that, you know, three to four foot, that place is like three, four, four. I surfed it on my own. I mean, I surfed it on my own every morning for like three, four weeks straight on that trip. Crazy. Um, there's four or five other guys there and no one's in a rush to get up. And so, I probably never had it above like six, eight foot faces, honestly, but it's just, a, you know, it's a 19 year old's dream for sure. Just to be there and do yeah. it. it's pretty accessible at that size. It's super fun. Got it. Um, in closing, what other surf media do you follow at this point in your life? I go through weird phases. Sometimes it feels a bit like a busman's holiday. So at the end of the day, and I don't know if that's an English phrase, but at the end of the day, you're just like, oh man, I spent the whole day looking at surfing photos and surf videos. I've been surfing. My head's deep in this problem. I don't need any more surfing yeah. right now. Um, as much as I love it, I'm just going to go and watch whatever's top recommended on Netflix and call it a day. Um, but I'm, uh, I subscribe to Stab. You know, I think that the work they've done with acid test and that you know the surface get paid thing i think is just i don't know how they got all those folks to say what they said to camera but i'm delighted they did that was just that's worth the price for sure um i subscribe to surface journal and i'd love to say i read every word of it 
but I mostly subscribe because I desperately want it to exist because I think it's rad and it, and it should. And I certainly read enough of it to feel like I'm getting, you know, the good end of the deal. Um, I go and see what Chaz is up to on Beach Grit when someone sends me a link, which is normally like, a, oh shit, did you see this thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I have to go and figure out what that is. So I'm, I'm, it's, it's in the orbit um, for me. And then, yeah, I like, you know, every now and then there's something like long form comes out that's thoughtful or a little bit different. I like to go and I like to go and see that. And uh, this friend of mine here set up a, a lovely little cafe, bar, skate bowl set up just up the road from the beach. And so, you know, a little addition to our small community now is the, the odd movie night, which is, you know, nicely old school and something really fun to be part Super of. Super cool. So, tends to be how I dip in and out. Amazing. Um, Final question is, whose surfboards are you riding? So I, I, when we, two answers, all of them, any of them, I love them. Um, I have an eclectic collection of them. I'm, I'm always of the belief that there will be some new magic to discover. And I picked up a bunch when I was there. I've got a, I've got a weird little five fin bonza thing behind me and another bonza egg and i'm looking over my shoulder i've got a a couple of weird little twin fins that a local shaper made me but i've got a a, i've got a friend in in luke hart here locally who's been making shortboards for me for 10 years and makes me my you know the next evolution of my pretty state pretty middle of the road six one comes for him and then i like I like, he's made me a he made me a Morocco board this winter. Just a, a, a just an I think the remit was as as solid a step up as you can get in a seven foot bag, which he which he nailed for me. Um, so that's that's here. And then I think lurking down here, I've actually got a I've got a Pucas Twig Baker like nine o, which every now and then sees misadventure in in France. Or you know we've got a couple of little offshore bits here from time to time. So. Um, yeah, so I think I pulled them out the other day. I think I've I've bought or been given forty boards in the last ten years, and I've never sold one. I've snapped a couple. Yeah, but the rest are all around somewhere. Good. Yeah, I'm in the same position where it's um, like a embarrassment of riches kind of when it comes to surfboards, <laughs> and you can't ride them all. I mean, I'm at the point where I I don't want to turn them away when somebody offers me a surfboard but I'm out of storage mm. space and my time is very limited. My surf time is more and more limited. Um, but I can't stand to sell any of the old ones cause I have in the past a couple of times. And then my interest cycles back to that five or seven years later. I'm like, man, I would love to ride like an 85 thruster. That's I used right. to have two or three of those and now I don't, you know, I've so. explained this to my wife and this is where that sympathetic spouse piece is, is, is tested because I don't think she fully understands that even though, even though she serves with me. If I had a little bit of degree, yeah, same. I can't, I can't imagine getting rid of one and then wishing I hadn't. I don't ever want to be in that. I don't mind snapping them. That's fair use, right? But, but that right. idea would be a little Totally. But the, you know, talking of, talking of living the good life, if this is the biggest problem in the David Scales world, that's a wonderful problem to have, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That is absolutely (laughs) first world problem. Yeah. Well, Hey, congrats on, um, 
all of the growth, all of the successes, but the recent kind of lifestyle change based on the Surfline acquisition. And um, it's fantastic to see. And it's a great contribution to the surf world at large that you've made. So amazing stuff. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the time. Thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome. Thank you, Ben Freeston. Beyond Ben's forecasting work with Surfline, they are doing some incredible stuff lately with the editorial and also documenting surfing around the globe. So surfline.com for free, but there's also a lot of worthwhile premium content. If you wanna pay for the subscription, you'll get access to the cameras and other stuff. So thank you, Surfline. Ben, you are an inspiration. Congratulations on all the success. And thank you, listeners. Find everything that we discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com, along with all of our other shows and all of the past archives, 10 years worth of podcasts available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then finally, a reminder from Sunbum, know your spots, the ABCs of skin checks. All of these things warrant a visit to the dermatologist. If your spots have asymmetry, uneven borders, variety in color, diameter over six millimeters, or if there's an evolution of any of the moles or spots on your body at all, go get them checked. Dying from skin cancer is avoidable. Know your spots. Thank you, Sunbum, for the reminder and the guidance. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode, but until then, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and as always, shred on.